0: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I catch up with Gigi Foster to talk about her thought provoking new paper, COVID's Cohort of Losers, in which she argues that COVID policies massively disadvantage young people with few offsetting benefits. My occasional co host, Tim Hughes, took part in the conversation too. Gigi is Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She was named 2019 Young Economist of the Year by the Economic Society of Australia. She has an undergraduate degree from Yale and a PhD from the University of Maryland. Okay, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Gigi Foster. Professor Gigi Foster, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: It's uh, terrific, Gigi. I've got Tim Hughes with me. Tim, good to have you. In this conversation too? Yeah, good to be here. Nice to meet you,
2: Gigi, again.
0: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, both Tim and I saw Gigi at an event in Brisbane on First Tuesday Club when we you presented on your book, The Great COVID Panic, Gigi. So, uh, after that, you've, well, among other things, you've produced a paper for Centre for Independent Studies. So, that, that's an organisation I've got a connection with. I'm an adjunct fellow there, and you've written this great paper called Covid's cohort of losers, the intergenerational burden of the government's coronavirus response. So, to start off with, Gigi, I'd like to ask you about this uh, estimate you've got in your paper. You estimate that the COVID policies Australia pursued—so we're talking about lockdowns, keeping kids home, not it, keeping them uh, away from school—those COVID policies have cost the nation's youth at least 116 times the value of any benefit that they could have received from these policies. And you say that this is a conservative estimate. Could you tell us, please, I mean, how do you broadly, just broadly to begin with, how do you come up with a number like that, 116 times the value of any benefit?
1: So basically, the approach I take in that CIS report, which came out a few months ago, is very similar to the approach I take in my cost-benefit analysis of Australia's COVID lockdowns, generally for the entire country, which was published by Conocort in late 2022. That's a a book now that is um, co-authored with Sanjeev Sablok, who you may also know of through his um, anti-lockdown statements during the past few years. He used to be a Victorian treasury economist and then he parted ways with the treasury uh, in, I think, September 2020. And fortunately, it was between jobs. So I was able to partner with him in, in producing this larger cost-benefit analysis. And then CIS, well, Matt Taylor at CIS asked me to uh, produce a kind of focused report specifically on the cost to youth. So the mechanisms that caused damage um, during the COVID period um, that were really the, the main ones I was worried about when we started with the lockdowns, are the fact that when you lock people down, you're making them stressed and unhappy, right? So there's that one immediate negative effect. And then also the fact that because we followed up lockdowns with these large fiscal stimuli, the JobKeeper program in particular, that we were going to be racking up debt. We're also creating inflationary conditions, which I mentioned at the time, but that seemed to be something nobody wanted to hear. (laughs) But certainly the debt is basically signing us up to not be able to spend as much on other things in the future. And so for children or young people who are going to be around in the future, of course, that means that they're going to have a less good life in the future because we have accumulated this debt during this period. The the three years of the COVID period were the two years, really, which is what I'm analyzing in the report and in the cost-benefit analysis, so 2020 and 2021. And those two types of damage, those two mechanisms of damage are the major ones that are that are making up the large amount of costs, which is $116 billion, I believe, that I estimate that the youth uh, will have paid because of our COVID response. Now, of course, doing a cost-benefit analysis, as the name suggests, means that you also need to enumerate the benefits. And so, of course, the benefits that were touted when the lockdowns came in were that we would save people from COVID, right? And as it turns out, and this was true in March 2020, if you actually looked at the data, COVID is mostly dangerous to the elderly or people who are comorbid. Mm. So, in fact, the average age of COVID death, uh, death with COVID is basically the life expectancy in Australia, right? And uh, so, you know, really, if you're thinking about the benefits to youth of lockdowns, they're not in the form of saving people from COVID deaths. They are actually more in the form of a few people not dying in traffic accidents or homicides who otherwise might have if we hadn't had the lockdowns. Those are benefits that were not sold as part of the marketing package for the lockdowns initially, but they are benefits. So there are fewer people going to pubs. And of course, the young people who go to pubs sometimes get drunk and accidentally off each other. And then there were also fewer people driving cars. And so there were a few fewer deaths from that. So, you know, those those were the kinds of benefits that if you were looking for benefits to the young, um, it would count. Now, of course, the question then is, well, how do you compare these costs and benefits, right? Because it sounds like being more stressed when you're sitting at home because of lockdowns is not really in the same category. It's not in the same currency mm. as a benefit that means, OK, I'm not going to die from a, a homicide at a pub, right? So, in order to do this, we have to choose, and this is true for any cost benefit analysis that anyone has ever conducted, you have to choose a currency in which you are able to basically express and quantify the costs and the benefits of the policy or policies that you're evaluating. And so, for my cost benefit analysis of Australia, for Australia as a whole, and for the CIS report, what i choose to use is something we call the welby or the well-being year and this is a new currency reasonably new it came on the scene in about 2018 or so it was the production of a bunch of researchers at the london school of economics and it's built from a question that asks directly about life satisfaction right? so there's a there's a question that appears on many life satisfaction surveys around the world and across time that says overall how satisfied are you with your life nowadays now you know, you can argue about whether that actually captures everything that is important, right? Mm. Uh, but I think in terms of the immediate effects of the lockdowns, it's not bad. It's probably better than alternative statistics that we have access to, like, you know, how many people were thrown out of work or um, how much is GDP expected to decline? Because it is really directly about human welfare, human well-being. And, and that, to me, it, certainly as an economist, that is the most defensible maximand of government policy. It's the maximum that I try to go for when I'm when I'm making policy recommendations. I want to recommend policy that has that is going to maximize human well-being, human thriving from the scarce resources that we've got, right? So I like the currency for particularly for that purpose for for figuring out how much people suffered during lockdowns directly. And the, so the well-being is built from this question. The question's answered on a 0 to 10 Scale So zero is not at all satisfied and and 10 is, you know, completely satisfied. The average answer to that question of somebody in a place like Australia when they're feeling pretty good and healthy is about an eight. And the average answer of somebody who is kind of indifferent between life and death because their life is so difficult and painful is around a two. Though there's some disagreement about this, some people say one. I I used two, which means that eight minus two being six, well bees. So each increment there on that scale is one well be. So six well bees enjoyed for one person for one year is equivalent to basically enjoying one year of healthy life. Yeah. And one year of healthy life enjoyed by one person is also expressible as what many of your listeners may already know as the quality adjusted life year, the QALY. Mm. This is a currency that's used a lot in health policy research, right? And health economics and decisions about what drugs to buy and, and this kind of thing. So the TGA, our, our drugs administrator, they use this quality measure in order to bargain with drug companies when drug companies have new things to offer. The TGA says, well, how many qualities will I get from this drug and if the number of qualies is you know let's say 10 then the tga says okay well we'll buy that drug if the cost is no more than 10 times some threshold value that they'll pay per quality and that threshold value tends to be somewhere between 50 and 100,000 dollars per quality yeah. so that shows you right there what the sort of social willingness to pay for a healthy life year is in australia and that value by the way is higher in higher GDP per capita countries, of course, than in lower GDP per capita countries. So as we increase our GDP per capita, so too does our willingness to pay for socially for an additional life year increase. That's why GDP per capita is something we sometimes target in economics, right? We want to be able to afford better and more and, and you know, we want to be able to pay more for the good things in life, including more healthy life years for our citizens. So yeah. what that means is that you can basically translate from Welby's to qualies to dollars that enables me then to capture other costs like the debt, for example, in its native currency like dollars and translate back to Welby's if I want to translate forward. And, you know, there are some caveats around that translation, which, of course, you know, I discussed, but but that's basically the method. And that's the method that I use in both the report and the CBA for lockdowns. And I find that lockdowns were, as everybody else who has done a serious cost-benefit analysis around the world has found, lockdowns were enormously more expensive than they could possibly have delivered in benefits, particularly for our youth who really had nothing to gain from them.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly um, during some of the lockdowns we had, I, if I, I was asked zero to 10, yeah, it wouldn't have been eight for sure. So, uh, yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. I can understand how uh, the logic. Uh, Tim, do you have any questions for Gigi at this stage?
2: A lot of my interest in this, I find it fascinating using um, well and qualities and uh, referring those to dollar value. I think it was really interesting and um, a good way of quantifying responses and how um, we might have a better response. My main interest, Gigi, is um, in using whatever we went through to sort of determine what might be the best way to respond to something like this if and when it happens again. Because so much has been said about the response and everyone's got an opinion, which I fully understand. Uh, I've got my own opinions as well. I think the best thing that can come out of it is like, well, what should we be doing the next time this happens? Like what protocol can we put in place And also, for instance, like to uh, compare it to bushfire protocol, most people are quite familiar with what we would do in a bushfire. It's going to come around more regularly than a pandemic. But uh, is there something that we can learn from all of this that we can put into place uh, to put in a better response, especially in the early stages?
1: Well, I, I think that's a very, very important question. And I certainly like to think that the answer is yes, we can learn. But I would say that the, the lesson is not as much in the space of quantification of benefits and costs and the technical side. It's much more in the space of politics and psychology. Because if I were going to put the finger on what were the aspects of the, of the crisis that really drove this destructive response, they were very much uh, in the areas of politics and psychology. And, I, and you know some people will say, well, you're an economist, so don't talk mm-hmm. about that, right? Well, fa- fair enough. I mean, I studied ethics, politics, and economics in university, actually. So I have a bit of a broader perspective, I suppose, on the discipline and on social science generally than a lot of my fellow economists. And my mother was a psychologist. You know, I kind of know a little bit about psych. I took psych in school, too. So uh, for me, as a broad-minded social scientist, the COVID era has been the most amazing uh, lesson, the most amazing time to live through, right? Because I have not only sort of honed my existing theories of human behavior and group influence, which has basically been the driving uh, curiosity of my life, but also learned new things like, for example, the power of crowd psychology in a moment of crisis to drive destruction. Now we saw that, of course, we've seen this, you know, in the history books, right? I mean, we saw it in the witch hunts in, mm, in the U.S., for yes. example. Uh, we've seen it in 1930s Germany, but I'd never lived through something like this. The creation of a cult, the creation of, of crowd thinking such that you literally had people whose minds had been hijacked by the crowd narrative, which in this case, you know, is an obsession. A crowd obsesses. That's kind of the defining feature. It obsesses about one thing, right? And you'd have a conversation with these people who had basically had their minds taken away uh, and their minds were simply then in service to the defense of the crowd logic. And you would try to tell them logical things, you know, sensible things about real facts and things, you know, and they were just, they just couldn't hear it literally couldn't hear it. It was like talking at complete cross purposes. This is why early in the crisis, some of us who thought we saw what was really going on, what the data really showed, which was certainly not that this was the Black Death or the Spanish flu and You know, we should probably protect the old people and try to figure out ways to minimize their likelihood of catching it. But basically, let everybody else keep going and develop natural immunity so that we could more quickly get to a point where we could protect the old people through natural immunity. That's what we were all thinking, or at least many of us. But, you know, we were looking at the rest of the world, you know, these other people in our lives and thinking wow, I I just don't seem to be able to reach this person anymore. I mean, am I going crazy or is this person going crazy? So that was a really interesting lesson. So all of that is to say that the answers to how do we prevent this from happening again are really about how to control that fear so that the crowd is less likely to form so that you don't have that kind of obsession that drowns out everything else that matters in normal times, right? Which is why we were able to do this destruction blindly because we literally were blind to yeah. the destruction that we were doing. And and also how can we make the people in authority at such times more accountable to what is actually good for the people as a whole? Now, that's a, that's a difficult area because of course, the people were clamoring for lockdowns. In fact, that's why they were delivered, right? I, when I gave a seminar about this yesterday in Macquarie, that was that was one of the points raised. And it's a very valid point. It's not that the politicians came up with this whole lockdown shenanigans on their own, you know, and then were like, oh, you, you have to have this, everybody. We're gonna have to, you know, sorry, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. No, no, no. The populations of the West became incredibly frightened and they were demanding protection from COVID. And the politicians who were in charge at the time read the writing on the wall and basically thought to themselves, well, if I don't do something big, I'm going to lose my seat and I'm going to potentially be blamed for, you know, not saving the country from what is perceived to be a, a mortal threat. And, you know, in such times that the character of a person really comes out, you know, and and they're. It's, it's not like there's an easy way to tether actions back to the true interests of the people in that time because so many people are caught up in this fear, right? But job one should be to reduce the fear. That should be job one. And that actually happened in some countries, right? Sweden did that. So they tried to tamp down the fear. And then another thing that's very important, of course, and then I'll I'll be quiet, is to try to make sure you've got independent voices, voices that are alternative, dissident voices about what's going on. So you actually have kind of a, you know, some kind of a check on this monovision that's that's barreling through the policy fields, which is what was happening in March and April. Everybody thought the same way. And anybody who would say anything different was pilloried or, or denigrated. I mean, I was called a neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior and a granny killer and a piece of human excrement. I mean, so many I have a whole jar full of these epithets. Um, And, you know, it's like why all I was saying was that what we're doing has costs. You know, yeah. that's literally all I was saying. So it's a it's a it's a complicated question what to do next. And and I think we need to really think about that as a society, but not just in the area of technical uh, costs and benefits.
0: Yeah, Gigi, uh, what I'm wondering is if you thought. I, I agree with you, by the way, on lockdowns. And now I see that it was the cost far exceeded the benefits for COVID. But could it be the case that for another uh, virus or another, and say, if we had, you know, if we had the plague again? I mean, thankfully, we we don't. That's not really a prospect. But if it was something worse than COVID, could lockdowns make sense then?
1: So that's also a really great question. I'm actually at the moment writing a paper together with Sanjeev Sablok and Paul Freiders, who I've, I've both written with before, as you know, yeah. about the history of quarantine policy, whether quarantines, lockdowns basically, or, uh, you know, cordon sanitaire, as they're called in French, whether they actually have a track record of working in response to other disease threats over the ages, including the Black Death uh, and many other uh, diseases as well. Now, what we are discovering, and this is really down to Sanjeev's amazing historical work, is that, in fact, in the 1800s, there was a movement that developed, based on the, the scant evidence that quarantines did anything positive and a huge amount of evidence that they were very destructive, there was a movement that they developed called the Sanitarians Movement, which aimed to basically beat quarantine as an idea out of the public health system and replace it with the idea that what we need to aim for in public health is clean water, clean streets, clean air, sanitary living conditions, basically, mm-hmm. because in such conditions... Of course, as we now know, germs are less likely to thrive, you have lower viral loads, you have more health for, you know, individual people, it's just more immune supportive, if you can breathe free, you know, freely and fresh air and all this and drink clean water. So, it's really about supporting the immunity of the people and reducing the the load of the infectious agents rather than separating people according to whether you think they've, you know, been exposed or not, or certainly in the case of COVID, even people you don't think have necessarily been exposed. Just whole health the populations, locking them down, that that just, you know, that that's not nearly as effective as the as its sanitary measures. So there was a figure called Charles McLean, who was an advocate of the in the sanitarian movement and basically did a lot of the research showing that quarantines basically fail and that really what they are. And this was the interesting, particularly interesting part of his work, that what they are is a tool for control that is often pressed upon populations by public health bureaucracies. So it's much more about here is something we can do and we can justify our jobs by having this thing in place. Because, I mean, my goodness, the bureaucracy and, you know, COVIDocracy that, that grew up during the COVID era was pretty large. You know, you had to hire more people and, you know, get them to to help you enforce these various policies on the population. But in terms of actual effect on disease is pretty minimal. In my cost-benefit analysis, I estimate that maybe we extended the lives of maybe 10,000 mostly elderly and comorbid people for a few years. That's what we got out of lockdowns. And what we paid for that was way more than the roughly six million, sorry, six billion dollars that in normal times we'd be willing to pay for that amount of of benefit. That is to save uh, a few live years of about ten thousand people. So you know, so basically, quarantines or lockdowns do not have a good track record, and that was already embodied in the pre twenty twenty pandemic management plans in place, not only in Australia but around the world in the West. That said, look, locking down whole populations is just very, very costly, unlikely to be beneficial, and so we should avoid it. And we should target protection measures instead. So, so basically, I like to tell people who say, "Well, you know, what else were we supposed to do?" You know, mm. well, the question is, you know, that lockdowns don't work. <laughs> so, what are you going to do? Right? Everybody's scared. You need to find something to do, so that you don't run headlong into a into a speeding truck which is what lockdowns are. That's what you don't do. (laughs) But of course, you have to take some action. Now, if you ask me, is there any disease that one could potentially create or imagine in one's head for which lockdowns might have more benefit than cost? I mean, even for the Black Death, it's questionable compared to the other things that could be done, sanitary measures, right, compared to everything else we could do. It's not like we have let it rip versus lockdown. There's a whole spectrum of possible response. And we really didn't investigate that spectrum at all during COVID. So I think the answer is really usually it's nuanced. It's customized to the disease in play. It should be updated as we learn more information about that disease. And it should be targeted to the people who are truly vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Gigi, can I ask about that? Uh, those numbers you cited regarding how many lives or how many years of life were potentially saved—did you do that modelling, or did you rely on modelling by epidemiologists? And how did you do that? Because I mean, you're an economist rather than an epidemiologist. I don't mean to be critical at all, but have you had pushback on that? Have people said, "Oh, well, you haven't modelled that. Why should we believe those estimates?" I mean, because you were yeah. you're criticising. This uh, estimate from the Prime Minister. Prime Minister Scott Morrison claimed while campaigning before the May 2022 election, his regime of COVID policies had saved forty thousand lives. Your and my analysis, so your analysis shows this figure to be a significant overestimate, even being generous to lockdowns, potential to deliver benefits. How confident are you in that assessment, Gigi?
1: I mean, I'm as confident as one could be based on the data that we used. I, mm. I very expressly did not use model simulations. And by the way, that was one of the big errors of this time. In mid-March, you may even recall Neil Ferguson's ICL modeling came out saying that, you know, 60 million people around the world were going to die or something. And of course, as we know, the COVID death count even now is, you know, an order of magnitude less than that. And and by the way, Neil Ferguson had been wrong in the past, right? Mm. These epidemiological models that are run in a simulated environment in a computer that necessarily do not include all of the real-world variables that are actually relevant to... Whether people die or suffer from diseases are notoriously exaggerative of the bad outcomes that may occur from a new disease threat, right? That has happened again and again and again. We've had SARS and the swine flu and the, you know, all these different flus that have been modeled. And they've basically always, there's been some coterie of doomsaying epidemiology people who have said, based on my model, Everybody's going to die, right? That's just a common thing. It happens, right? Yeah. And you know why? Because, you know, the media loves that stuff. If, you know, if they get hold of a guy like that who will, you know, put on a bleeding headline, uh, that'll get eyeballs, right? And and they get status and they get to be the, the person who really cares about people because if you care about people, then, you know, don't you care that they're all going to die? I mean, that becomes this whole narrative. And it really crowds out actual science. Actual science is based at best on real data real data right of course we have theories about what happens and and we need to use those to, to structure our understanding of our world but our world is so incredibly complex and dynamic and there are endogenous factors that are happening and shocks that we can't predict there's just so much going on that all models are wrong as somebody said in my discipline but some are useful that's how you should see a model so what i did in order to produce that estimate of how many people in a counterfactual non-lockdown Australia would have succumbed to COVID, is I looked with Sanjeev, we looked at the countries in the world that had low restriction levels. So obviously Sweden is one, mm-hmm. Yeah, but we also used another counterfactual, which was about six, I think, other countries with populations over a million that had low restrictions, mostly in Europe. I think Taiwan might've been in there as well. And we, we basically took, you know, the average deaths from COVID. This is real data, real yeah. data, what they actually experienced, not something that comes out of a computer-generated simulation, but actual data, because we just believe that much more. And then we, of course, adjusted for population and then applied it to Australia. And we said, well, this is our best guess, right? Now, even if you think that I'm underballing that, lowballing that, in fact, even if you think the prime minister's estimate of 40,000 people who would have died is correct, if you look at the costs of lockdowns, they still weren't worth it. Right. So even if I'm totally yeah. wrong, the Prime Minister's right, the lockdowns still shouldn't have been pursued. Right. But I also think that the Prime Minister is using these simulation models, these SIR models, or or something like this to, you know, from the Doherty Institute or some other kind of, you know, uh institute that was supporting the narrative and coming out with these doomsday scenarios to come up with that figure and make himself look like a savior.
0: Mm. No, that's fair enough. I was just just wondering what you did. That seems to make sense. To me, what did you find about the deaths of young people? So if we go back to the study Covid's cohort of losers, how are we defining young people and how do you recall how many young people did end up dying of Covid in Australia?
1: So the young people are 25 and under. Okay. That's the estimate. And look, there will have been a few who were 25 and under who died of Covid, but it's going to be very very small. Uh, and they they may have died of something else anyway, because these people almost to a man or, or a woman or a child uh, will have been already sick with something else, you know, diabetes or uh, a, a bad illness of some sort. So I think it's very debatable whether there was any direct COVID-related benefit to these uh, younger people from the lockdowns. As I say, they, you know, people in their young 20s and, and late teens are exactly the ones who may get into car crashes and may get into bar fights. So really, if I'm looking for benefits from lockdowns, that's where I'm going to look for the young, um, not not in terms of COVID deaths.
0: Right. And just wanted to just check this, Gigi, you've got these figures in your paper somewhere, have you, where, because the the calculation you've done is this, you've got this 116 times the value of any benefit. So you've got an estimate in well of what the cost was to young people. And then you divide that by, the benefits to young people to get that 116 times and that's also in wellbiz so is that in one of these yep. tables is it or-
1: so i mean I, I don't have the report up at the moment but yeah there's a table of all of the costs and yep. then we also tabulate the benefits and then you simply take the ratio of one to the other obviously you want to make sure you're using the same currency so whether you're using wellbiz or dollars to get that ratio uh in the cost benefit analysis for australia as a whole i know the ratio was 68 times as i recall it was a bit higher i as i say i don't have the report open but i think it was a bit higher for the young but basically because the benefit just wasn't as high but there was some benefit so you know that this as i say i keep saying that the traffic accidents was the main thing
0: (laughs) okay we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor
1: If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modeling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Now back to the show. Yeah, so you've got estimated cost to the Australian young of the 2020 21 COVID lockdowns, and you end up with an estimate in Wellbees of, it looks like it's over 7 million, over 7 million Wellbies. So that's saying that the costs imposed on the young, so there are 7 million years of Poor well-being for young people.
1: Uh, not exactly. So a well-being is one increment on that satisfaction scale, right? So you're probably okay. getting qualies. So if you divide that number of well-bees by six, then you get to the qualies, and that's the the currency you're thinking of, which is the number of healthy years.
0: Ah, uh, okay, 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 Yeah,
1: yep. And and but you're right in terms of that. That is that that's roughly the the you know the the way to think about it is that this is the amount that was deducted from the the well-being of the young, okay? And that's in terms of number of years, but also the health of those years. And again, as I mentioned at the start, the two main components of that are, one, the direct life satisfaction damage done during lockdowns, because people reported less satisfaction. And by the way, we see that in the data for Australia. So this question about life satisfaction was asked during lockdowns by the ANU poll uh, survey people. So we literally used their findings to to calibrate how much we think there was as a decrement to life satisfaction during the covid period. And then the second big element of that cost is the debt, which will crowd out future expenditure which would have otherwise made the lives of our young people much better in the future. Now you may ask, you know, what about the school closures, you know, wouldn't you think that would be a big thing? And yeah. and it is a thing, but it's it's interesting a bit of a complication here. So I I was seriously um disturbed at the the degree to which school closures were just immediately adopted and everybody thought, oh yeah, this will be fine. We'll just have everybody working from home, you know, doing their, you know, classes from home and all this. I mean, it obviously was not the same and it it put our teachers under an enormous amount of pressure, by the way, as well. And of course, I mean, I would have naturally expected that in that situation, those kids who are already initially before COVID, in a disadvantaged or stressed situation, are going to be seriously left behind, right? Now, the more advantaged kids, you know, kids of, of mine, for example, if I'd had small kids at the time, they would have been fine. And I had young young adult kids at the time, and they were fine because, you know, we have the resources to be able to support them and, and help to mitigate the damage that otherwise would have happened. But it's the people already at the bottom of the food chain who suffer the most. Right which which really makes me angry because that, that's you know that's the last thing we need. Inequality is so unhelpful and and it's it's just a horrible thing when you know these these people in cushy government jobs and bureaucracies who don't have any problem with job security are, are pushing this on people who then suffer and they're you know they're already suffering. so it's just really heartless. anyway. so you might think, well, that's going to of course limit the degree to which these kids are going to be able to learn whatever it is that they're learning, right? They're, they're what we call in economics, their human capital, you know, what's in their brains mm-hmm. from their years and years of schooling and experience will be necessarily less. And that is true. But what we have to do then to figure out the uh, the sort of cost that has been eventually imposed upon them in terms of their well-bees or their qualities is work out, well, how much is that productivity loss going to be reflected in lower wages when they get to be adults? And of those wages, how much is actually likely to then be spent on things that would have otherwise made them healthier, better off, you know, more satisfied, et cetera, but that we you know, are not going to be able to spend now because of the fact that they don't have as high wages. Well, it's, you know, it's not just the full wage of those kids that you want to count because as it happens, when we spend privately, we're often spending on things like status goods. You know, we're not always, but particularly in a country like Australia, we're spending to keep up with other people. So it's not that every extra dollar that these kids would have earned would have actually led to increases in life satisfaction. You know, you you spend in order to keep up with the Joneses. That doesn't make you more satisfied. It just keeps you at the same level sort of thing. So what really you want to count is the fraction of those extra wages, counterfactual wages that would have been accumulated by the society as a whole and spent on public goods like more health, better education, better infrastructure, and this sort of thing. So that's basically the tax take. So that's what we do to estimate the the negative, the damage from the loss of schooling, the disruption to schooling in terms of well in the future for these kids. And as it turns out, that amount tends to be, you know, it turns out to be much less than it would be if we counted that whole foregone wage. And so, you know, that's a bit of a surprise, perhaps, to some people, but it's just because of this interesting feature of the way in which our private spending is or isn't related to uh, creating more life satisfaction for us.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. the whole economics of it, which, of course, is what you two uh, are trained in and experienced in. So, yeah, the the figures are are pretty damning for uh, any of the responses around the world, apart from those who took a lighter view of it, or like Sweden, for instance, And I think it was really good that different responses were taken around the world so that they could be compared and um, whatever would come from that. Like like I said at the beginning, my main main interest in all of these conversations really is to see what could we do better next time in view of what happened. Uh, And that's still largely the case because clearly, I mean, I'm a lay person. That's my role in in this scenario. You guys are uh, economists. Clearly, we would all listen to Epidemiologists, medical people who would have their views on this too, because, for instance, in the early days of um, COVID nineteen, from the pictures that were being seen from North Italy, for instance, um, the uh, you know the, the scenes from the hospitals there seemed extremely dire, and and I didn't feel, for instance, um, everyone's got a unique uh, perspective of the lockdown and, and what happened. I, I didn't um, see or feel any great fear in Australia. We were a long way from it, so geographically, we're a long way from that Kind of action, but uh, I'm sorry, long COVID, no, bad joke. Um, so <laughs> sorry, yeah. My feeling would be that uh, what, one of the first things with this, because I, I saw uh, not panic or fear, um, especially over here in Australia, but people just complying and sort of concerned, but um, just going along with what appeared to be you know the best decisions at the times. You know, what can we do to protect the uh, hospitals and the doctors and nurses from being overwhelmed? It was one of the driving forces. Uh, and some of the logic that a layperson like myself might see in a lockdown. So for instance, and um, if that turns out to be not the best response, then I'm really open to see what would be the best response because everything done and said, what are we going to do next time when this comes around? And there seems to be an early stage of any of these pandemics. We mentioned SARS and MERS, Ebola, for instance. They all have different CFRs, so the case fatality rate, and how likely to die are you if you contract this? And they have different R0 scores, which is something I learned about. As uh, we uh, did some background for this, the transmissibility yep. of it, how, how easily transmissible is it? And so there must be at some point an area in early days of any of these uh, viruses where we're not sure, we don't know. And so the first thing would be, I would have thought to say, okay, well, how soon can we have any kind of certainty as to what we're dealing with? How what, What's the case fatality rate? Uh, how easily transmissible is it? That would be, I would imagine, one of the first things we can do. And then let it unfold from there. Like I mentioned before, like if some sort of protocol that we can have in place that we're not, I mean, everyone, all of us now have some experience with this from what we've gone through for good or bad or whatever. Uh, And I don't think, I think it was a one trick pony for the amount of lockdowns that happened. Even the most patient person would be less compliant if this was to happen Fairly soon, and you know, so, so the next one will be different straight away, you know, so what is it we can put in place that everyone can be generally okay with that would be uh, a good response, but like I said, uh, sorry, going back to an initial point, how do we determine you know what would be that uh, that first response of like just how bad is this what are we dealing with?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about having in place a protocol, uh, you know, so that we know what the steps are, everybody can agree to them. That is kind of what the pandemic management policies that we already had before COVID were. Which worked.
2: nobody had known about. And like, uh, it, it didn't seem to be any, it seemed to catch well, everyone by surprise.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that people who whose job it was to know about them, knew about them, you know, the mm. departments of health, in the various different states and the Commonwealth. I mean, the, they would, of course, know about their own pandemic management policies, right? The yeah. people as all might not have known about them, but that's because, you know, we don't know a lot about a lot of things that go on in the back rooms of government that are just handling stuff. Like, you know, do we know how many steamrollers are purchased every year for the infrastructure projects? No, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And it came to the fore that these pandemic management policies existed really a, quite a long time after the lockdowns were implemented right nobody was talking at the time about hey why are we doing this look it says in the plan we're not supposed to nobody was saying that right so your your desire for a protocol on which everyone can agree i mean we we had that and it failed unfortunately that's from my perspective that's why i say the key things here are politics and psychology those are the two things that we need to focus on if we want to get a better solution going forward and and You know, on the point of the overcrowded hospitals and and overworked nursing and and doctor staffs, I mean, yes, it is true that in times of great disease and, and, you know, the the influx of a new bug, hospitals sometimes become very crowded and the the workers in healthcare systems sometimes become very overworked. This is something that they deal with on a semi-regular basis. There's surge capacity protocols. That these hospitals have, and that the staff have as well, and you know, you can bring in more people. It's it's like uh, it's like if you have a war, you know, and you and you have to mobilize, right? There are ways we do this. And as an economist, I might make the dry observation that if you never have your hospitals overcrowded, then you've got too many hospitals, right? If you always have a spare bed and some spare hands hanging around, then you should redeploy the money that you've spent to hire those beds and that, that those workers to some other area that can support human well-being and thriving. Right, because we only have so many dollars, right? And so you don't want to have spare capacity underutilized. So there is just this natural ebb and flow of sickness and and illness that, um, and and, you know, injury as well, that hospitals have to manage. They manage this in maternity wards, for example, right? A lot of women give birth when it's raining outside, right? A particular pressure or whatever causes people to to go into labor. And that means that you sometimes have to, you know, basically employ a lot more people, doctors and nursing staff or whatever at a particular moment. And then there's less demand later. I mean, hospitals know how to handle this. So that's that's point one about the hospital overcrowding. Point two, we've been through this exact kind of problem before. The 1957 flu was very similar. We didn't lock down whole healthy populations for that thing. Right. We didn't have The media that we have today—we didn't have the global media spreading all of these scary stories about Italy, as you mentioned, or China. You know, people falling over in the streets, or New York City with the mass graves and all that. So we didn't have the fear generation mechanism that we have today, but we did have a virus that was pretty similar in terms of its virulence. How was that one actually?
2: Yeah, so was just another flu.
1: Yeah, Yeah. not another flu. And, And the thing about COVID that really was different than some of the analogs that were being used was not only that it was less lethal, but it was also just not killing kids right? 1918 flu was scary because it was killing everybody, right? Kids as well. Mm-hmm. That's really scary, right? Like one of the worst things going to happen to you as a human being is you lose your child, right? So th- that's very bad. That was just not really happening during COVID, except for children who were already seriously ill. Um, and even then, you know, less likely. And even for some people, I mean, people in the exact risk baskets, they were still surviving with more than, you know, 50% likelihood. It wasn't like it was a complete death sentence. So, So anyway, the second point On the hospitals thing, it's just that you're presuming that going to the hospital is the thing that you have to do when you have COVID. That's the only way we can treat it or the best way we can treat it. As it turned out, going to hospital was kind of a mixed bag. In a lot of cases with COVID, right? And if you put people on ventilators, mechanical ventilators, they often have worse outcomes. Um, not always, but but frequently enough. It wasn't a panacea, right? Going to hospital didn't mean that you'd be cured. In fact, it was you know kind of much of a muchness in a lot of cases. And sometimes, so as the um, as the panic wore on and the protocols became more entrenched about you know how are we going to count COVID and how much money goes to hospitals that have COVID cases, it became financially advantageous for hospitals to label somebody a COVID case and then follow a particular protocol to treat that person, which really might not have the best outcome for him or her, right? So hospitals were a real mixed bag. And what we weren't told was all of the other myriad things that one can do if one wants to, A, avoid getting uh, ill, and B, if one is ill, to limit the the probability that you're going to progress to a disease stage where you really will need to go to hospital. So there were plenty of things we could have done you know, including all the stuff we already knew before COVID about how to fight respiratory illnesses, you know, take lots of vitamin C, go outside, get your vitamin D, Uh, have, you know, fresh drinking water and have lots of sleep and eat fruits and vegetables. And as it turned out over time, we were learning about more things, the important role of zinc and the important role of, uh, you know, sort of other prophylactic measures, which were just suppressed. And in fact, you know, the crowning achievement of that suppression was the TGA blocking ivermectin, which has been proven to be a useful prophylactic and very useful in the early stages. But why did we block it? I ask you, that's not public health. That's not uh, protocols. That's politics right there. That's power politics. And so if we want to fix this, if you want a plan going forward, I think what we need to do is work on our political system. We need to revive the accountability of the people making decisions at times of crisis to the people as a whole and and a representative bunch of people then need to be sort of responsible in some way for those who are in authority or the decisions or overseeing those decisions. So I've suggested a number of different avenues forward. In uh, both the Great COVID Panic and on some blogs that have come afterwards on Brownstone Institute's site, Brownstone is my publisher for the Great COVID Panic. So brownstone.org, you can see those blogs. One of them I'll mention here is um, the citizen juries idea. So at the mm-hmm. at the time of COVID, we saw a lot of bureaucrats who were unelected and completely unaccountable, who were basically driving policy. Uh, so you know health health ministers, for example, uh, around the around the country, right? Remember Brett Sutton, who basically became a sex symbol? Yeah. And Brad Hazard and a few other ones. And, you know, these people were doing things and and advocating for policies that never went through parliament. They never they never got the tick expressly from the people. Now, the politicians will say, well, but the people were clamoring for more and more protection. And, you know, that is true to a certain extent. But these guys were appointed by politicians. So there was also this element to which they were all kind of playing into each other's game. Right. Everybody was following a playbook rather than really having anyone looking out for what was really in the long term interest of the people. So I, with my co-authors, Paul Freiders and Michael Baker, we've proposed that instead of having those positions, like the head of the Ministry of Health, be political appointments, we have them instead be appointments by citizen juries. So we already use the jury system in the criminal justice system, right? The idea would be that everybody in Australia, every citizen, gets put on a jury roll, and in expectation, once in your life, you have to spend two to three months working with 20 to 30 of your peers, and your sole job is to appoint the next Minister of Health or Minister of the Environment or Minister of Immigration or whatever it is, right, on top of, a, of the public service. And if we did this over a few years and, you know, kept replacing all of the various heads who needed to be replaced at the state level and the Commonwealth level with people appointed by the people as a whole rather than politicians, we'd end up with a burgeoning cadre of people Making, you know, in positions of authority, able to make decisions and hopefully more responsive to what is actually good for the people because it's the people who would have appointed them right, rather than the politicians. So that's one suggestion to try to hack away at the bad politics of this whole situation so that maybe the next time those people would feel a bit more of a duty to be responsive to what was actually good for Australia.
0: Yeah. Very good, GG. I've had Nicholas Gruen on the show and we've talked about citizens juries in the past. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. Think I think they're a great idea. Did you
2: have a follow up, Tim? Um, no, I heard that episode, that conversation you had with Nick, uh, Nick Gruen. And uh, yeah, the, the idea of citizens juries uh, I, f- I find really interesting. It's along the lines of uh, what Warren Hatch from Good Judgment is talking about with super forecasters to have skilled generalists um, as opposed to experts. I mean, obviously, we need to uh, listen to everybody. I think uh, listening to different perspectives and uh, different opinions is really important with all of this, and that that feeds in with the citizens' juries, is to have that diversity of opinion in these areas of selection. So I think that's a really, really interesting point. Just one more, Gigi. Yeah, this is great. I really enjoyed this and learning a bit, learning a lot. So
0: particularly about your methodology, I find this whole well-be methodology fascinating because it's not something I've used myself and it's something that's different from standard cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I'd just like to ask, I mean, how has it been received uh, worldwide, this Welby Methodology is it being applied for? What what policy issues is it being applied to?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, and and one of the reasons I use it is because it is actually getting some traction. So right now in the UK Green Book, uh, which is the kind of I don't know guide for how to mm. judge. Uh, how to evaluate policies, or you know what we should be going for as a government. They talk about wellbees. They talk about how to produce wellbees through government spending. Government programs have been evaluated against the metric of how many wellbees on net are we getting from this program, and that program can be something like. Uh, you know, mental health provision, mental health service provision, which by the way, has a very, at least in the UK studies I've seen, has a very high uh, benefit to cost ratio. So you should do that if you're a government. Mental health support is a very important thing. And you can also evaluate anything uh, else that the government might do, like bussing old people up to Stonehenge to have a look, you know, or or taking people out, you know, disabled people out to lunch every week or whatever the thing is that, you know, you're hoping that that might help people. Mm. And you kind of want a measure of that, you know, are we really delivering higher quality of life to our people with this policy? So it's being accepted, I think, more broadly as a reasonable and defensible metric to which governments can be tethered there. They can be held accountable. There have been a number of cost-benefit analyses, actually, of COVID policy that have been conducted in WellBe terms. So not only in Australia, but I think in about six other countries around the world, there have been these these CBAs that have used WellBe's. Um, But of course, there have also been a lot of other CBAs that have used dollars or qualies. And we all come to the same conclusion, you know, broadly qualitatively. But it's, it's really lovely to see that diversity, you know, as you're saying before, you know, diversity is an incredibly important strength of our, of our modern societies, if we could only harness it. Right. And what we did in COVID, of course, was we, we suppressed it. You know, we kind of killed that, that golden goose. Well, that's another thing we really need to focus on is how to not move in the direction of suppression and censorship. So for example, these new laws about misinformation and disinformation, I think these things are toxic. That's awful, you know, because who is going to decide what is disinformation Mm -hmm. and misinformation? I mean, my gosh, it's puerile, right? And I, just the idea, the conceit, you know, the hubris that somehow the government knows what the truth is. I mean, when has that ever been true? You know, <laughs> come on, <laughs> right? Like nobody has a, has a monopoly on the truth. I don't have a monopoly on the truth. You know, I, I, I would love to be proven wrong on some of these things. During the lockdowns, I was thinking to myself, my God, I hope I'm wrong. My God, I hope I'm wrong, right? Because if I'm not, we're killing people, you know? <laughs> these policies are killing thousands of people. And, and it's just, it's too, too horrific to imagine. So, you know, I, I, I would like to have more discussion of these, of these issues across aisles of belief and perspective and experience. And we need to relearn how to have tolerance for that. You know, this, this cancel culture dynamic we've got going on today is extremely toxic. It, it suppresses one of the greatest strengths of our civilized post enlightenment societies. And, and it basically just means that you have a lack of innovation right innovation comes from somebody in a minority at that time having a new idea right and saying hey guys why don't we try this that's that's what an innovation is and if you if you quash alternative voices you're quashing innovation and innovation is a source as you know of all growth so mm. right that's the wrong direction to go if we want to build healthy vibrant societies with gains in human life quality which is what i'm going for
2: completely agree i think um you know healthy debate and having those guidelines around what healthy debate is and the ability to listen to different perspectives and avoiding the echo chambers, which I agree. I think that's what the cancel culture encourages is to people to go to their little um, sort of support groups and and say their things amongst each other without any um, serious sort of challenges to their ideas or hearing new ideas. So I I, I fully, I fully agree with that, Gigi.
0: And I think, I think certainly young people, if you look at the The cost versus any benefit that they obtained, yeah, it's going to far exceed that that benefit. I I agree with that. You've come up with seven over seven million wellbies as a a cost, and around sixty thousand wellbies as a benefit. Now, it's going to be some multiple, you know, large multiple of uh, of any benefits. I agree with that. Have you thought about whether you know young people may have been willing to pay that? Because they thought they were protecting their grandparents yeah. or elderly people. Have you thought about that, Gigi, and how you might incorporate that in your analysis?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the the question there is, would the government in a counterfactual world have been able to take policies that would have readjusted people's expectations towards the truth? In the moment of crisis, because the truth was that it was not going to be protective of their grandparents to do all of this stuff. In fact, it would be more protective if they went out, licked a lot of lampposts, tried to get COVID, got immunity, and then were you know not dangerous to their grandparents anymore. Right? That's what we were doing. I mean, in my family, we were trying to get COVID every which way, and we didn't manage to until finally last year I got it. Um, But you know, it was sort of the young, healthy people you know, on paper, they just wanted to get immunity as quickly as possible. That's what that's what would have best protected their grandparents. So the reason why people believed that was hmm. the misinformation promulgated by the government. Right. So if you ask me, well, you know, should we just have gone along with that? Well, no. You know, I, I like to think that we could have a society where the government isn't pushing propaganda. You know, that's that's uh, that's not what in a democratic society I look to the government to do. The government is our servant it's our servant and it should not be stuffing our, our throats with, you know, wrong think um, and then, and calling it right think and, and calling everybody else who disagrees the people who are the wrong thinkers. Right. I mean, it's 1984. So, mm. um, yeah, I, you, you know, you <laughs> no, basically, I think. And now, now the, the issue, however, is that because we have now lived through this many people have become psychologically tethered to the narrative they have been themselves in part the agent of a lot of this destruction right and in their own mind their identity is swept up with this and they took actions against their own family often that they thought at the time were protective because of course most people act you know in a way that that upholds their self-image as being a good person. Of course, right? But now that that's being revealed not to have been true, we have got a massive psychological problem on our hands. Massive. People are unable to talk about this in an unemotive way. They're scarred psychologically. They are, the the actual realities are so shocking that if they were to face them, I think many people would, would just fall into a really deep hole um, psychologically. And so that is in my mind, one of the big problems that we have to deal with now, uh, in the post COVID, you know, period is to reconcile across the aisles. And it's not the people like me who were pilloried at the time who who took the most psychological damage. Like I can handle it. It's fine. Right. Like Mm -hmm. whatever. Right. I knew I was doing the right thing. I sleep well at night. No problem. But for the people who were part of the damaging structure, including those who were, you know, calling each other out about the masking, you know, you don't have enough masks on or, you know, dobbing people in for going to school when they had a sneeze or whatever it was, you know, they were being the agents of this destruction. You know, they've now learned, oh, okay, in the 1930s, I would have been part of the regime, right? That's the scary realization. And for them to really face that is just going to cause a huge psychological shock. So uh, that for me is, is one of the big, yeah, uh, things we have to work out. Uh, how are we going to help those people? Going forward. Uh, And because history will eventually put this period down as one of the most tragic in history because of the mismanagement of the crisis by the government and all the people who went right along with it will have to, you know, read that in the history books. And that's going to be really difficult for them. So, yeah, I have a lot of uh, compassion for those people.
0: Very good. Tim, uh, it will, we might end on your intelligent observation, assuming
2: it is intelligent. I sh- oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I won't edit it Yeah, out. I shouldn't talk it up too much. It was more of, um, I mean, uh, along the lines actually um, of a couple of things you said earlier, Gigi, about um, health and um, good nutrition, being able to go out in the sunlight and everything, which of course was restricted at, at times with uh, some of the uh, lockdowns, of course. And, and something that we can do straight away to help us um, f- through any future pandemics is to become healthier, improve our immune systems naturally, which has all these multiple benefits as well. So going along with any psychological issues that we may be facing as a, as a, a result of the pandemic then to eat well and exercise well and sleep well would go along with that fabulously. And what I was going to put forward, you guys being economists, um, see what you think about subsidizing the cost of vegetables and whole foods. So fruit, veg, and meat in their natural state. So uh, without being processed and uh, put a tax on ultra processed food to be able to pay for that subsidy. So instead of Pringles being whatever they are, double the price of that and use that money to subsidize uh, so people can be encouraged to eat more healthily.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a typical kind of economist response, right? it's you know, a syntax, basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, we we have at the moment, as you know, a GST which uh, applies to you know a lot of goods and services, but not the foods, you know, foodstuffs of various sorts. You could you could have you could have exclusions for you know fresh fruit, and fresh vegetables, whatever, and then have a GST in place for anything processed. There's all sorts of things you could do if you wished. My reading of the closest thing to that that I've seen elsewhere, which is the tax on sugary drinks experiment, right, that's been run elsewhere, is that it does collect money. You know, you do collect money and it does reduce uh, the purchasing of those beverages, those sugary drinks. But it usually doesn't actually change the underlying issue, which in those cases is obesity. Right. Yeah. It doesn't really have a measurable impact on the amount of people who are obese, the fraction of people who are obese, how obese they are, or whatever, because what happens is people switch to other things. They may not buy the Coke, but they instead buy the muffins and then, you know, they're <laughs> getting just as fat. So in the case of the the taxation on, you know, different goods, I I just don't know really. Partly it's because I, I think that some of the reason, if not the bulk of the reason, why some people are not as healthy, don't choose as healthy habits as others is psychological. Okay. It's not just about the resources that are literally available to you. Like, Do you have enough money to buy the fruits and the vegetables? It's a bit of that perhaps. And certainly in some food desert areas, it will be that. And, and there's a cultural element, of course, which is, you know, if your family doesn't eat this way, how can you do that? But then that's, is that really going to be that affected by, you know, taxes? Probably not. So my, my sense, I mean, obesity is a mental health problem from my perspective. And I think that low immunity is also to an extent that as well. If I think about myself, for example, I have this incredible luxury of, you know, being able to, I mean, I have a nice, good job, well-paying job. I mean, they haven't fired me yet. Thank goodness. You know, knock on <laughs> wood. Um, for saying all the things I've said during this period, uh, I, I love my job. I love teaching. I love doing research. I love doing these conversations. I have the luxury of of being able to afford kitchen appliances, which let me make beautiful smoothies every day from fresh fruits and vegetables I buy from the store. I have great sleep every night. I you know I can run. I can exercise. I got sex every day I want, and you know, all these things that are obviously promotive of immunity. But I also have something that people don't mention a lot, which is a huge amount of mental resources. Why? Because I am loved. I am supported. I was. I, I feel accepted. I feel I'm making a contribution to my world. I'm also healthy naturally. So, you know, I've, because I've been investing in my health, I can use that health surfeit to put more effort into being healthier, right? A lot of people who are in places of disadvantage and not looking after their health do not have those kinds of advantages. They're in dysfunctional families. They're we got multiple overlapping problems, you know, substance abuse, domestic violence. They've got unclean, you know, living environments, you know, hail the sanitation people again. So, you know, those people, are they really going to respond to having to pay 10 cents less for a, you know, a carrot or something? I don't know. I think the problems are bigger than that. So I'm not saying don't try it, but I think that the problems are, are again, wider than just Here's a protocol, you know, in terms of the COVID stuff, similarly with being healthy. It's not just the costs. It's also other entrenched problems, which have to do with psychology and culture.
2: No, mm. fair enough. And dear, and, yeah, like anything, it's not straightforward. But for most of us, it is something within our control that we can sort of focus on and do better on. So it's certainly something I think uh, can be emphasized by governments and whoever um, is looking to improve responses and everything. It's the foundation of uh, our natural immune systems. Um, which isn't impervious to all of these uh, viruses, of course, but um, certainly gives us a fighting chance.
1: Totally agree.
0: Absolutely.
2: Okay, Professor Gigi Foster, it's been terrific. Thanks so much for your time. I
0: really enjoyed chatting with you and, uh, yeah, it was great and uh, thanks for answering our questions and, yeah, really uh, look forward to your future work. So thanks so much, Gigi.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It's a a great pleasure to speak with you.
2: Thanks, Gigi.
0: Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplore.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.